So this evening, we're going to continue on in the series we started a few weeks ago called How to Follow an Invisible God, right? And the whole premise of this idea is that um, after Easter, Jesus shows up resurrected, he hangs around for 40 days, and then he ascends to the Father. His physical Jesus the guy is no longer on earth in the same way he used to be. And so it begs the question, like, how do we, who are so relational... How do we follow this God? I mean, it'd be really tough to be married to Corey if I didn't see her a lot and, you know, be able to touch her and cool stuff. Um, so how do, how do we do that? So let me just recap, you know, if you're just joining us for the first time in the series or uh, maybe, frankly, maybe you just forgot from last week. Um, where have we been? Well, first of all, we see that, that Jesus knows in advance he's going to go to the Father. He knows he's going to be resurrected and then he's going to go ascend to the Father. So what he does is he prepares the disciples and us, because they wrote it down, he prepares everyone for this event, this going away. And he does a great job of it in John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. So over the last couple of weeks, we've seen some pretty cool stuff. First of all, that Jesus tells us he's going to prepare a place. And we talked about uh, this place meaning two things. One, of, one thing is it's a future place. He's going to prepare a kingdom, and he's going to bring it back. And one day when he shows up, it's going to be, oh, life will be better than you can imagine. No more tears, no more death, no more suffering, and uh, cool stuff. I'm looking forward to that. But that doesn't do a lot for me right now, does it? Uh, there's another sense in which Jesus is preparing this place in the Father's house, and the Father's house is the temple. The temple is where God's presence dwelt, okay? So now he's saying, I'm going to prepare this place for all of you. And it's the Holy Spirit. God's very presence now multiplied over everyone who believes in Him. So it's actually better than it was before because when Jesus was a guy on earth, you could only be with Him if you were with Him, right? But now, through His Holy Spirit, He can be with us when we leave this place and we're scattered all around Bellingham, around the world. Pretty cool. Last week was a real mind trip because Jesus said something crazy. He said, you know the works that I've been doing, all these amazing works and amazing deeds? You're going to do those same things and greater things than these. And so we talked about how through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, one, we're able to do and be... Uh, greater people, do greater things in, in God's kingdom than actually Jesus was able to do. The main reason for that is because when Jesus was the guy on earth, everything he did was before the cross. And now we minister after the cross. So we can invite people into a relationship of salvation and forgiveness and new life that wasn't available before the cross. That's why we can actually do greater deeds. Pretty awesome. So, in today's text, we're going to explore one of the many roles of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has been talking about. And we're going to see how we can experience genuine peace. Anybody want that? I mean, I totally want that. So, would you please stand with me as we read the text? It's going to be John 14, 25 through 31. And Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's go from here. Spirit of the living God, we invite you to open us. Open our minds and our hearts, our will, to what you're going to say to us through your text this evening, through your very living word. Pray that we'd be receptive, good soil, and that you would produce good fruit in us. Amen. You may be seated. So what we just read is that this Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, is to remind us and teach us the things that Jesus said and did. You know, and and that totally makes sense to me for us, right? We live about 2,000 years after Jesus, so it makes sense that we would need the Holy Spirit to remind us and teach us things. But why, why would Jesus be saying this to his own disciples? who were witnesses to all the amazing things he was already doing. They saw him raise people from the dead and turn water to wine, and you know all the stuff he did. Well, the disciples need to be reminded, because they're just like you and me. They believe slowly, and they forget quickly. I mean, take the Exodus, for example, right? Here are people enslaved in Egypt, and God comes to rescue his people. He sends these amazing plagues on Pharaoh to get him to change his mind. So Pharaoh then releases the people, and then he's psycho, and he changes his mind. You know how this works? So now the people are running from Pharaoh's army, and there's a sea in the way. Now they're sandwiched. And God, I mean, imagine if you were there, and this happened, right? He opens the sea up. You walk in the dry land, the army comes after, and then God makes it so that the water smashes the army. You know like that scene in uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, when the, like, yeah, yeah. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. That was Lord of the Rings in a nutshell. Okay. Uh, So, you've got the waters coming back in, and just an amazing thing. I've never seen anything like that in my entire life. But just days after this, they're complaining that God's going to starve them to death in the wilderness, right? We're so quick to forget God's goodness and faithfulness. And the same is true with the disciples. How many amazing things did they see Jesus do? How many times have they heard Him talk about going to the Father and, and preparing them for all this? But they still didn't get it. They saw and heard the things that Jesus said and did. But they needed the Spirit to teach them the significance of the things Jesus said and did. And we have the same problem. We need the Spirit to teach us what's the big deal about these scriptures. What what is it you're trying to get us to see here? And we even have another hurdle that those original disciples didn't have. It's called context, right? You see, Jesus' earthly ministry with the disciples was contextual. He was really born in Bethlehem. He was really a Jewish guy, and he taught using Jewish terms and stuff that is really hard for us to understand. 
So the Spirit teaches us not only what Jesus said, but what on earth this stuff means. And by the way, I think this is one of the beautiful realities of faith in Jesus, or the Christian faith, if you want to call it that. It's the fact that people had to come to terms with very early, is this following, this religion, is it going to be locked culturally? The early church had to deal with this right away. Remember, the early disciples were Jews, and then the gospel started to get out to these non-Jewish people, and they had to make a decision. Hey, are we going to make people become Jewish in culture and religion and do all that stuff and then become Christians? Well, the answer is no. The answer is no. That our faith is based on Jesus, right? Not a particular culture. Our, our faith is based on a person, not a set of religious experiences or, or, I guess, trappings, if you want to call it that. I mean, that's why the Bible is the most translated book in all the world. That's why you have such diversity in the church. It's the person we follow. Not the place or the culture or even worship styles, thank the Lord, huh? So the Spirit teaches us things, reminds us things, but the Spirit doesn't necessarily teach us new things. And what I mean by that is the Spirit doesn't like add on to what's in Scripture. The Spirit doesn't teach us more stuff than Jesus taught us. He just teaches us to understand what Jesus already said and did in our own context. So just last Monday night, we had this prayer gathering at my house, right? I talked about it earlier. We're seeking the Spirit's, the Spirit's guidance of how to apply His Word to be a missional church, how to serve and love our world in 2001 in the Lettered Streets neighborhood of Bellingham. How do we do that, Holy Spirit? And so one of the things that we're led to do is this bike rodeo, right? Really weird. So, you know, we're, we're going to do this thing where we have uh, skills, uh, skills training for kids. We're going to have mechanics there to come check out the bikes. We're going to give away free helmets. And we're going to have a fun competition. We'll have, you know, food. Uh, who wouldn't want to come? I, I'm coming. Uh, it, it'll be right, hopefully, well, we don't know where it's going to be yet, but in the neighborhood. And I think it's going to be a great time for kids to come together. And we can serve people in a relevant way in Jesus' name, right? Now... I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that in the first century, they didn't like have a camel rodeo for the local youngsters where they learned hand signals on the, on the camels, right? And I'm pretty darn sure they didn't have a bike rodeo. See, the Spirit can help us take a timeless command to follow Jesus, to love our neighbor as ourself, and contextualize it in a way that actually matters to the people that live around us. Okay? So how does this work? How does the Spirit remind us? Well, one way is by opening our eyes to what's called general revelation. Basically, general revelation is anything that's not the Bible. Okay? So nature. People like nature? I know some... Yeah, yeah okay. So we go out into nature. We take a hike. We see the amazing, an amazing old-growth forest and to see how little we are in comparison to some of these amazing things that God has done. We see complexity and power of the sea. We see, um, we see all of these things, the bazillion stars in the sky, and it makes us think of something better, something bigger, the Creator. Or there's science. This is a part of general revelation. Observation and hypothesis. It helps us appreciate God's handiwork. I mean, the whole mapping of the human genome is amazing to me. 
Like God thought us up in that way. And it's even artistic, like the double helix. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, advances in medicine, right? Sometimes the Spirit guides in that way. And usually when the Spirit guides and advances in medicine, He helps us with our ethics too. So a lot of times we get way out ahead in technology and we don't have the ethics to follow. That's a whole other sermon. Uh, and then there's advances in technology, right? Like think of this deal with the BP spill in the Gulf. It's just, it's a reminder that we kind of need to look at alternative sources. We can't just keep doing this and having these catastrophes. And then in the, in the paper on Friday's uh, Bellingham Herald, I see a whole page on electric vehicles. And so sometimes the spirit will take a catastrophe and maybe cause us to think of other ways to do things. Um, this is all general revelation. And then there's our experiences. And sometimes we read spiritual classics like the, um, the austerity and the spiritual battles of St. Anthony. Some good reading if you, if you want to borrow that sometime. This, this dude is like spiritual ninja. And then you've got uh, confessions of St. Augustine. And there's, we read about the path to intimacy through Teresa of Avila. And how to live when it feels like God is not even near through the writings of St. John of the Cross. And, and then some of us you know, are connected to C.S. Lewis and maybe even uh, more modern day N.T. Wright. But these types of authors and, and spiritual writers help us, help us see uh, that God is continually active in the world. None, hear this, nature, science, our favorite authors, none of these sources are in any way, shape, or form authoritative. Let me say that. None of these things are authoritative. They don't tell us exactly anything about God, but they can lead us on the right path sometimes. So how do we know when we're really seeing God the way we ought to versus our own opinion? Well, we base everything on Scripture. We check it with Scripture, and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us. That's why... So many churches, and letter streets included, that's why we preach right out of Scripture instead of my best ideas. Besides, like, you'd find out real quick my best ideas aren't very good, and then I'd have to get a new job. So I'm sticking with Scripture. It's very meaty, very good ideas in there. Uh, The Spirit helps us not only understand Scripture, but to trust in the author of Scripture and to apply it and to live it out. Now, I'm not usually into giving you like lists of things to do. You know that. How, when's the last time I gave you a list of any ten things to do? I don't think I've done that. But when we encounter something in Scripture, and it seems like a really good idea to do it, I'm not going to pass that up. So, if the Spirit reminds us of the things that Jesus said and did then we need to be familiar with the things that Jesus said and did, right? Like you can't be reminded of something you never knew. Is that true? can't be reminded of something you never knew. So instead of saying, I'm the pastor and you should read your Bibles for X amount of minutes, let me just throw out some questions that I've been wrestling with. Do you feel that you know the story of Scripture well enough? Do you wish you had more of it for the Spirit to remind you of? Then you might want to get better acquainted with God's story. I'm just saying. Yeah, if, if it takes, if the Spirit's going to remind us of 
God's Word and what Jesus said and did. And we need to be familiar with the story and mulling it over and giving the Spirit material to work with. And, you know, if you just... It takes all kinds of personalities. Some people just love reading Scripture all the time. Some people... It's loathsome. And if you need some, some tips or some helps on how to, how to do that in a customizable way, let's get together. Because it, there's no one-size-fits-all way to internalize Scripture. Okay. So, why, why does the Spirit remind us and teach us about these things that Jesus said and did? Okay, dumb question. There's lots of reasons, right? Like maturity and, 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 and all kinds of great reasons. But in the context of this passage that we're looking at this evening, the main reason is so that you and I would know peace. The peace of Christ. Okay? Jesus said, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. So we're going to attack this backwards. Let's begin with looking at the peace that the world offers, okay? And by the way, what is the world? Or who is the world? I got this quote from, uh, maybe it was Daryl Johnson, and he's probably quoting Leslie Newbegin. I don't know how far back it goes, but check this out. This is a good one. The world is human society organizing itself without God. The world is human society organizing itself without God. All right? So when John uses this term, the world, or when Jesus uses the term, the world, he's not talking about the earth. Okay? He's talking about this ethos or uh, worldview, this way of living where we don't put God in the center. All right? So if we live in this world, how important do you think it is that the Spirit reminds us of Jesus' life and teaching, right? So important. So this peace Jesus offers us is different than the world's peace. What is the world's peace? The world's peace makes these, these claims. I see the bumper stickers everywhere. World peace or world peace. I see peace signs and read about peace protests. But what is the peace that the world's trying to offer? What does it look like? We talked about this in our small group. Actually, our small group is doing this fun thing where we're looking at the sermon text before the sermon. So it's kind of cool for me, too, because I'm getting to study in community and um, basically tell everyone else's stories and their great sermon stuff. So pretty cool. Uh, but we had this discussion, and one of the, the main things that came out is that the world offers this peace, and typically the definition of peace for the world is an image of lack of conflict... Or tranquility, this utopian, just kind of nothing. It's actually kind of boring. And how does the world propose that we achieve peace? Well, one of the ways that came up was revenge. You ever think about that? How many movies are based on revenge? I cannot find peace until this is avenged. I tell you, it makes great like kung fu movie storylines, but it's not very effective for world peace because you just, you know, what I'm saying. But revenge is one of the ways that in popular film, a lot of times, or in literature, or even the way we feel, right? We want to make things right by getting revenge. Politics can be an avenue for trying to find world peace. Has that worked very well? Okay. Uh, religion, some religions propose that there is no pain in the world. It's all in your head, so just pretend it's not real and it'll all go away. 
serious. Uh, escapism. This one is, is rampant. You, you probably struggle with this too, just like I do. But, you know, if you buy more stuff, sometimes, you know, the rush of buying, like, a cool new gadget or if you're a... I don't know if you like shoes, a shoe, or if you like whatever you like. I don't know. I'm not going to start getting in trouble here. Uh, but buying stuff, right? It makes you feel good for a little bit, and then, oh my gosh, why did I do that? It's fleeting. Entertainment, love entertainment. Love entertainment. But you can start to use it as a crutch, too, when you just kind of hide out and escape from reality. Sit in a movie theater all weekend long, or what have you. World peace. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Heard this one, right? A life of hiddenness, of secrecy. And finally, I think the world offers peace by trying to convince us if we could just find the least common denominator, we'll all get along. We'll all get along. You've seen the bumper sticker with all the religious symbols on it. And it, basically it's the, the idea is they're all the same. Let's start arguing about what, what's right and wrong and just all believe the same thing. I'm not convinced that the person that has that bumper sticker really subscribes to any one of those religions, though, because if you, if you look at any one of them and you're really passionate about it, you see there are differences, right? It's like the idea that, hey, let's just be colorblind. Let's not recognize that there's differences between people. I think that's extremely degrading. I think that God loves the diversity in our world and that we should recognize diversity and then love it and celebrate it. That's so cheesy. I didn't say that. Celebrate diversity. But you know what I'm saying? What kind of saying that? Yeah. Let's just rename that phrase and make it cool. Um, this least common denominator idea really devalues everybody. So, all of these definitions of peace can we kind of see put out there by the world. They're all subjective and frankly they're self-centered depending on where you're sitting and what your definition of peace is. But if there is a God, wouldn't that God's definition of peace kind of be the real one? Like there's going to be one if there's, if there's a God. And God has this word for peace. Now, in, in, in John, it's this Greek word, erene, and what this translates is a Hebrew word, shalom. And we've talked about shalom over and over again. I just frankly can't get enough of it. Shalom carries with it this idea of justice, of, of God's kingdom coming, of blessing, of love. Shalom is, instead of a, a lack of activity, a lack of conflict, or just tranquility, shalom is a life of engagement. And creativity that seeks after beauty and creating beauty. It's a life of generosity and deep community. You know what happens when you get deep community? There's tension and you argue and you work things out. It's not this lack of conflict all the time. But Shalom is recognizing that God is the center of all things. And working through difficult issues. And seeking for justice, not mere band-aids or just lack of, of activity. Shalom is an active word and it does not ignore pain. It means that we're actively engaged in love and respect. It transcends our understanding and anything the world can offer. And at the heart of shalom, you're not going to find a gimmick or a technique or a political party. You're going to find a person, right? You're going to find Jesus the Christ. So why is there strife in the world? Why do we care so much about trying to find peace? 
Because we, you and me and everybody, have rebelled. We've rebelled against God. And we've organized our lives, whether we think we haven't or not, we've organized our lives around something else than God. Maybe it's our own comfort. Maybe it's our own security. Maybe it's our own control. But somewhere along the line, what we've done is stop believing that God really has our best interest in mind all the time. Jesus is at the center of shalom because he's the one who makes the peace. He makes peace with God and with other people possible for us. And how did he do it? Well, of course, he surrendered himself on the cross. Jesus said, the ruler of the world is coming and he's got nothing in me. That's actually a legal term. It means he's got no evidence to convict me. Okay? So the ruler of the world is coming. He's got nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Who's this ruler of the world? Well, in one sense, it's Caesar and his armies coming to arrest Jesus and that whole law. But the ruler of the world, of course, is, is Satan, the evil one who manipulates people who are open to manipulation. Listen, Satan does not have any power, the ruler of this world does not have any power over you and I that we don't give him. Okay? So when we don't center our lives on God, though, what we do is we open ourselves up to allow the ruler of the world to come and mess with us. Thankfully, Jesus said, take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Now peace, this peace that Jesus is talking about is costly. It cost Jesus giving his life on our behalf. And Jesus surrendered himself willingly to the Father's plan because he trusted the Father. And if we want to experience peace in our lives, guess what's coming? We need to surrender our lives to Jesus. This is not some ho-hum, cast it all to fate, I'll just throw it up and let the universe take care of it. In fact, I was talking with a lady yesterday, and uh, unfortunately, you want to hear the latest fiasco on our house? So we bought this really old house here in the neighborhood, and it's, oh, new roof and everything. Well, the only new roof is the half that you can see from the street, but the half that's by the adjourn- uh, house is not new. And we lost some shingles in a windstorm, and the roofer came by and said, oh, you're going to have to replace this whole thing. So I'm sitting there telling my neighbor about this, and, and she says, and I quote, I just throw it up to the universe, and I hope that it lands my way more often than not. Well, I hope the universe has like 3300 bucks. you know? I don't know the universe that well, but I'm not just casting it up. Our surrender, you see, is not just to the universe or to chance or to fate or to the island on lost, but it's to Jesus, right, who's actively reigning and ruling. We're called to surrender not to something, but to someone we can trust. And you know, surrender is tough. I'm talking to you as one of the biggest control freaks that I know. So, but it means that we're not in control of the final outcome of things. That's hard. As you all know, Corey is a dental hygienist, and she's downstairs, so she's not hearing this. Um, but we used to have this dog. Now, I married into this dog, you guys. It was a cockapoo. Uh, 13 pounds uh, wet. She was 13 pounds wet. Anyway, she was a 13-year-old dog. I actually... 
I actually loved her. Uh, she had rancid breath at 13 years old. And I used to take those Listerine strips, put them in her mouth, and for like five minutes, glory, but then... Nasty. So, Cor, being the good dental hygienist she was, and an ex-vet assistant, decided we need to clean this dog's teeth. So, Chris, you pin her down, and I'll use, and you know what she was using is like um, one of the screwdrivers that you fix glasses with. Actually, not like, she, that's what she used, a screwdriver thing for glasses. And so I'm pinning the dog down, and she's nipping and biting and squirming, and so I get this idea. If I lay her on her back in between the couch cushions, see, she's like this, and uh, she, she's kicking, and her face is like this, and all of a sudden, she either passed out, and no, she, she surrendered, right, or she got worn out, um, and of course, once she surrendered, it was easy to, to do the work of cleaning her teeth, and her breath got a little better. Now, obviously, the slightly humorous and slightly disturbing story does not even come close to matching some of the anxieties that we've carried in the past or that we carry right now. It doesn't come close to touching some of the worry that we experience. It doesn't come close to explaining whether or not there really is someone up there who cares when it doesn't seem like there is. Wayne read a powerful text earlier from Philippians. The middle of it says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And the peace, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart, the center of your being in Hebrew thought, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, I, I don't know where we get this idea, but sometimes we think that God doesn't care about the little things. But he doesn't care about the cold that we have or, you know, that our kid is sick or that I can't find a parking spot at the Mariners game or, you know, the, the little things that kind of stress us out. But God, I assure you, He does. And St. Paul says to pray for everything. For everything. Our hopes and dreams, our relational struggles, everyday stressful situations... There's nothing too, too small and certainly nothing too large for God to consider and to care about. When we surrender, now here's the great part, when we surrender, we no longer bear the weight of the outcome. That's huge. We no longer bear the weight of things turning out just right. We trust the one who knows best who's good through and through. Think about that. I, mean, I don't just want to pass over that. It means we don't carry the weight of the final outcome of everything. Some of you carry the... I see it. You carry the weight of how things are going to turn out with your finances, of how things are going to turn out with your marriage and your relationship. And I'm not saying you don't have responsibility. I'm just saying you don't have the final outcome resting on your shoulders when you surrender. And, and, and the hard part is that sometimes the final outcome is better than you dreamed up, but it's nothing like you thought it was going to look like. And that can be difficult. You know, one of the biggest sources of stress that many people face is financial. 
and we have a ton of teachers in our congregation and um, for a lot of our teachers with less seniority every year is the cycle of getting laid off over the summer praying for a job hopefully getting one well many of you know Charlotte Plog she's um, part of Letter Street's church and part of our small group and about a month ago you know she's coming up on the end of a contract and kind of wondering about what, what to do. She has lots of options. She's not married, so she could pretty much move anywhere she wants to. She could go to another county where um, jobs are more secure. She could even travel overseas and, and teach like that. And that those would be great options for her. But she felt the Lord was calling her to invest in her local community. And to take a risk and to trust Him. So what she did is she came up with an, a, a commitment. She said, I don't know if I have a job next year, but I'm going to commit to staying here one calendar year from today and trust that if I don't get a job teaching, God's going to provide somehow. Okay? I say, uh, you know, Charlotte, how, how does this... How do you square this? I mean, how are you doing with this? And she just basically, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, but she says, you know, God has always been faithful in the past, and I think He's going to come through in this situation. I mean, basically what she said. She was experiencing this peace that transcends understanding. I mean, she has a house. She has bills. She has hopes and dreams. She sure would love to be putting money in the bank and not just hoping on, on the dream. But she had this peace that transcends understanding. Now, I wrestled with whether or not to share this. I, I'll share it with you because I wrote it down. A few weeks later, she was offered the job for next year. That's awesome. And go God, right? But I know that things don't always work out like this. And I would have used this example even if Charlotte were still searching for a job. You know why? Because she had that peace that transcends understanding before she found out about this new job. And that's what I'm talking about. It's Remember, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, comfort, come is with, fort is fortitude. It's, it's strength in our times of trial. When we're walking through the fire and the unknowns, that's when we need the peace of God that transcends understanding. So what is it for you? What is the source of anxiety for you this evening? What would you like to surrender, but you're having a hard time letting go? Let's just take, take a minute of silence and, and lay that out before God. Ask Him for help in letting it go.